Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 8th, 2023. We are back talking about Mexico, and all too often it seems conversation about Mexico focus on violence and drugs. We did a show earlier this year with Deborah Benella uh, on the rise of women in Latin America's drug cartels. Uh, she has an intriguing new book out, Narcas, The Secret Rise of Women in Latin American Cartels, which was a fascinating conversation. Uh, a few months ago, we also did a, a show with Catherine Corseran, uh, another uh, international journalist focusing on her book about a 2012 murder of a Mexican journalist. Uh, the book is called In the Mouth of the Wolf, and it's a book about revealing what a murder tells us about the current state of Mexican justice, if that's the right word. Today's book brings all these worlds together. Uh, Azam Ahmed works for the New York Times, and he has a major new book out, Fear is just a word. It's been acclaimed by everyone who reads it. And I thought uh, we might just get Azam to introduce the book because I'm sure he can do a much better job than I can bringing these words of uh, worlds of crime and females and justice together. Azam, welcome. Uh, congratulations on the book. Uh, it's a very depressing subject, though, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. Well, first off, thanks for having me. And second off, yeah, it's um, it's dark matter. You know, you're writing about death and violence and seemingly sort of hopelessness. But at the same time, it's a, it's meant to be written in a way that is engaging and readable. You know, it, it reads or is meant to be read more like a novel in that way, but just laden with the kind of facts and details that that I think will help a reader understand how Mexico got to be where it is now. So let's get to the story first and then maybe broaden it out and and make sense of its meaning in terms of Mexico. It, it's a terrible story. Uh, that The subtitle of the book is A Missing Daughter, A Violent Cartel, and A Mother's Quest for Vengeance, which pretty much summarizes, I guess, what the, what the story is about. Yeah, it's, it's the story of a woman named Miriam Rodriguez, uh, a mother of three. She sold cowboy hats and boots from a market in the small town about 70 miles south of Texas. And one day, in the middle of sort of a violent crime wave that had seized her town and actually had made it sort of a, one of the most violent places in Mexico. This is San out, Fernando, right? San Fernando. Yeah, exactly. The small town of San Fernando, Tamaulipas, which in 2010 had become the location of, you know, the death of, you know, dozens of migrants who were murdered by the Setas cartel, which was a cartel that was in charge of that town. And it was warring with one of their rivals. And that war was actually one of the front lines was in San Fernando. The following year, hundreds of bodies were found just on the outskirts of the same small town. And we're talking about a town of less than 30,000 people. Uh, and these bodies were found in mass graves just scattered throughout. So it had kind of become a marked town that in many ways had become synonymous with Mexico's rampant drug violence. Flash forward a couple of years and Miriam's daughter is kidnapped. Now, at the time, kidnappings had become so common in this town that banks actually offered loans to pay ransoms. That's how, how grim it had, it had gotten. 
So Miriam, of course, pays the ransom, does everything you're told you're supposed to do in these situations. She doesn't go to the police because she doesn't want to alert, alert, or she doesn't want to offend the cartel or anger them. And she never gets her daughter back. And in an ordinary circumstance, you know, people might, what happens a lot in Mexico is people realize they don't really have the power to do anything. You know, they are entirely helpless and they have the rest of their loved ones to worry about. And so they have to kind of, however they can move on. But she sort of breaks in some ways and something snaps, you know, from, from the pain. And she decides to go after these individuals herself. She goes to the police, she goes to prosecutors, no one will really help her. So she begins, she launches her own investigation and starts to go after these individuals one by one. It's an astonishing story, uh, and, and I guess it resonates in a way in America uh, with that vigilante piece of, of its culture. Is it in some ways like a, a, a 19th century American story of justice? In some ways. I mean, it's, it's a story that is predicated on living somewhere without a functioning rule of law. Um, and maybe that is a 19th century America story. It's a 20th century story for a lot of places, including some places in the United States, but in Mexico in particular, when you can't rely on the state institutions that are there to help you. You know, I, when I did this story, it was just a, it was a powerful gripping narrative. You have a mother who is going after the people responsible for taking her daughter, who actually manages to track down a number of them, imprison them, uh, and then herself is killed by the cartel that she has kind of sworn to go after. The story itself is just like a, it's a remarkable kind of story, regardless of what, you, what sort of bigger themes you tether it to. But then as a way to get into what's happened in Mexico, it, it just, it seized me because you have a situation where people are always talking about Mexico as this corrupt, you know, place where there's impunity and violence. But I really wanted to understand how can this be a place where a mother can be killed for the simple act of seeking justice for her daughter that the state denies her, the state will not give her. Uh, and to answer that question required a much deeper dive into what was going, what is going on in Mexico and why. And in a lot of ways, it led me back to the early 1900s um, and the way that the Mexican state evolved after the Mexican revolution. I mean, it's a bit esoteric sounding, but when you think about the way that a nation gets created, the way that politics and corruption become interwoven in the DNA of a, of, a, of a governmental identity. And then the way organized crime fits into that, you flash forward a hundred years, and of course you're gonna see the metastasis of those early, those original sins in some ways. You say that you can go back to the early 19th century to see in which the way in which the, the Mexican state evolved, but was there a state or is there a state or what is exactly this state is it just a series of private interests so it, it's the early 20th century when the mexican revolution ends and this new group is trying to come up with a way or an identity for how to move mexico forward they don't want the old kind of you know almost like autocratic model that existed previously where it was the wealthy and the poor and so they try and design this system and essentially one dominant political party comes to power. It's called the Institutional Revolutionary Party. And if that sounds like a, you know, kind of a name that in some ways means everything and nothing, it, because it was, it's, the institu it's institutional and revolutionary at the same time. And basically this was the dominant political party for 70 years. 
Uh, Mario Vargas Llosa once called it the world's most perfect dictatorship because under the auspices of what felt and looked like democracy, it was essentially autocracy just rebranded. And this institution just dominated the country and dominated the political landscape such that the criminal organizations that flourished in this period, smugglers, people who would ultimately become drug traffickers, they answered to the government. They were, they were almost like a, a branch of the government, sort of this, this co-op that existed in the nation. But what happened is over time, as this organized crime kind of model coexisted with the government, the government began to lose power. And by the 90s, there was a shift and this one dominant political party lost its footing and no longer controlled the government. Other rival parties were coming to power, but when that hegemony of the one monopolistic party was broken, there was no more command and control over organized crime. And suddenly there was an inversion and organized crime became the far more powerful partner. And that's where we are today. You have 70 years of essentially criminal allowance by an extraordinarily strong state that could control and keep in check those criminal elements. Suddenly the one power that could keep those criminal elements in check dissipates, and then you have unchecked criminal power. So today you do have a Mexican state that is strong in certain respects. It has a political identity, in particular now in Mexico. It has elements of strength that really work for it, but then it's also alongside a criminal enterprise that essentially sells the most popular substance that is always going to manage to, it's always going to have a market, right? Illicit drugs, especially in the United States. So it's more of like a, a coexistence as opposed to a completely criminal state itself. We are speaking with Azam Ahmed, uh, New York Times reporter and the author of a major new book, Fear is Just a Word. Uh, Azam, the way you present it is really a nightmare. It's as if you, you suggest that the state became inverted and the criminals have taken over the state almost officially. Is that fair? I don't think they've taken over the state officially. I think the state is still the state. I think what you see instead is more like an ineptitude on behalf of the state. The state just has no capacity to, to render justice, has no capacity to check and control this. I mean, especially in this era in the 2000s, 2010, in some degree in the years that followed, you would see these heinous scenes of crime and violence and just wonder like, how is this even possible? At the same time, they didn't have a police force that was functioning, so they would deploy the military, and the military became extraordinarily violent. It's not that there are criminals, like cartels are running the state. It's just that there is a state that cannot control those cartels that are running a multi-multi-billion dollar business that regulates itself through violence. You know, it's like any other business, there has to be business regulation and contract enforcement, but because it's the illicit market, that is... is that is adjudicated through violence. And you have a state that is incapable of stopping that and in some ways complicit with it. But I wouldn't go so far as to say the entire state is part of this sort of narcotic trafficking business. I've spent some time in Mexico just as, as a tourist in Mexico City. And there are a huge amount of, not police, but troops on the street. Have the military then essentially replaced the police? Is that what's happened? Or are they trying to get the military, in a sense, to replace the police? And what what are the, the senior military people? Are they implicated in this or are they powerless? 
The, so a number of years ago, the president of Mexico back in 2006 launched what he called the war on drugs. This and was Calderon was, or Fox? Felipe Calderon, exactly. In 2006, he comes into office and almost as soon as he takes office, he declares that he is going to wage war on drug traffickers. But to do that, he doesn't have an effective police. So he deploys the military, which was arguably and questionably illegal. Um, but he does it anyways. And the military, they're not there to investigate. They're not there to arrest people. They are a kinetic action force like any military. And so they start to essentially wage a war on the cartels. And I mean, I, I, I like to make this point because I think it's salient. The violence has been, I mean, in the last few years, violence has reached points that surpass any period from 2006 when the war on drugs was launched until today. If there's not a clear sign, and there are more overdose deaths in the United States and drugs passing through those borders than any period prior. If there's no clear indication of a failure of the war on drugs, both in the American context and the Mexican context, I wouldn't know how to describe it. The two key indicators, drug abuse and violence, have both soared. And in, in some ways, it sort of tells a story of a failed policy. But Calderon declares this war on drugs. This war on drugs proceeds to dominate the landscape for the next 20, for the next 15 years. And yeah, the military is still on the streets. And yeah, the police still have not been built into an effective force that can uh, that can create sort of a, a law enforcement environment. And so you're kind of you're kind of just meeting violence with violence. And the the record's pretty clear. It hasn't done anything to limit any of the factors that I think it was anticipated to to remediate. Yesterday we did a show on the way in which Hobbes's Leviathan has become the reality of the 2020s. But it, it, it really does sound like a society of a, a war, the, 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 the very society that Hobbes was so terrified of, a, a war of all against all. It's interesting. It's, it's not quite Hobbesian in the respect that it's a war against all. It's, it's a war of all against all. It's more like the, the stories of the people that live under this threat tend to be sensationalized or marginalized. There are still wide swaths of the country that are wealthy or privileged and they can live in a certain dynamic. But if you live outside of that band, you, the control that you have over your own life, the sort of privation of freedom is real. And it's a small group of individuals who dictate the terms for life for millions. So it's a, it's not quite like it's a clash at a societal level in that like society, like huge groups in society are fighting one another. It's more of like one large group that's being held captive by one small group and they're helpless because the government and the state is incapable of doing anything to protect them. It's a dreadful, it's a dreadful picture, uh, as um, uh, that you you paint, but one that's essential. I think we 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 we. It's not sensationalized, but we like to sentimentalize, particularly Mexico. You certainly haven't done that in fear is just the word. Uh, I want to thank the sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, who are enabling uh me to to interview uh high quality guests like uh, azam uh, ahmed uh, the author of fear uh, fear is just a word and a new york times correspondent going to run a 
a short piece about liberties and then we'll be back to talk more about the book uh and more about mexico itself in the 2020s news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration of intellectual delight of immaculate prose it's invaluable subscribe now or find liberties at your favorite bookseller and you can subscribe to liberties at libertiesjournal.com we are speaking with azam ahmed uh, the author of fear is just a word uh, a terribly depressing but also extremely important non-fiction book about um about mexico it could almost be fiction azam couldn't it i mean it, it's almost too terrifying to be true to me when i hear your stories yeah it's it's i mean it is it is a dark story but it's also one that has and is laced through with hope you have the story of this incredible remarkable woman who does these these almost supernatural feats to seek out i mean the thing the reason i chose this story to tell of the millions of stories that one could use to tell the story of contemporary Mexico is because of that. It is what she did was extraordinary. What she did was unique. She did the thing that most parents believe they would do for their child if something terrible happened to their child. But when put to the test, I think Mexico is a tragic example of just how few parents can do that. I how, think many, how many criminals and did she gun down and how did she know they were criminals? Well, I mean, this is this is the comp the complicating factor of this. Miriam, in many ways, saw the world in black and white, and I think that is a helpful way to think about the world when you are trying to track down the people who have taken your daughter. Um, she arrested nine, or she had nine arrested. Some of them she arrested herself, but others she had the police come and arrest. Uh, and then six were killed in a shootout with the Marines that she helped orchestrate. It was a raid on the ranch where this particular cartel operated. That. Uh, that she helped them locate and then accompanied them to. Um, and then subsequent to that, I think after that extraordinarily violent encounter where the Marines killed six, she then opted to take a more law enforcement centric tact and actually got the police and the prosecutors to work with her after sort of a painstaking amount of cajoling and kind of self-engineered investigation that she could then hand over to the authorities who would, who would take action only after she'd pretty much done everything herself. How much of a, uh, maybe this is the wrong word, a celebrity did she become, a, a folk hero in a sense, in taking on these gangs? She became a folk hero in town. I think the legacy is a bit complex. I think there were the people who were in awe of her and thought, oh my God, wow, I can't believe she's doing that. But most people were scared. Most people felt like, I can't believe she's doing that. And it is so risky and so crazy. And even some of her family started to distance themselves because they knew maybe it's just a matter of time before something awful happens. Um, but then there were others who, who not just admired her, it would be, it'd be too much to say that she was some self-aggrandized person going after people and, and soaking up fame. She learned how to move what is a calcified bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that has been built essentially not to function. She figured out how to get it to work for her. And once she had done that, she started to do it for others because 
She certainly wasn't alone. In Mexico, there's more than 100,000 disappeared. And in San Fernando, there were dozens and dozens. I mean, she had 200 people, 200 names of disappeared on a, on a ledger that she kept. And all of those people she was helping in one way or another, whether it was to push the police to do a search of areas where they thought their children might be buried, or push the prosecutors to charge someone who they knew to be involved in the disappearance of a child. And these people, most of these people loved her because they were the only advocate they'd ever had, that she, that she was the only ad, advocate they'd ever had. And that's, a, that's no small thing when your own government isn't going to help you. So she, she's a, she, has a complicated, she has a complicated legacy in that, you know, there was violence involved and she didn't always know, at least not in a court of law kind of way, that someone was responsible. But in an imperfect space where justice is almost never rendered, she got as close to the truth as I think anybody could have. As um, she was, as as you know, she was gunned down in 2017. Um, how is she remembered? Is, is she prominent now? She is to some degree. Again, it's a it's a complicated legacy. Like the the central town square of San Fernando has a a plaque that has been permanently placed there for her, um, which is a is a profound tribute to to what she did and who she is. And I think in general, people admire and respect what she did. But also there are people who look at her as a cautionary tale. Like if you push too hard, you go too hard. I mean, they killed her on Mother's Day in 2017 and that was no accident. What better way to send a potent message to the public of don't come after us because we will come after you than that. Now, of course her death had repercussions and most of the people who were involved in her daughter's kidnapping wound up arrested, although they might not say that way. Well. And the people who were involved in her death, many of them were arrested as well. The government had to respond because she had become sort of an icon. And she remains, to some degree, an icon. But it's not like organized crime ended in San Fernando. It's not like the Setas were wiped off the map because of what Miriam had done. She sort of found her small corner of justice that you know, was hard fought. You know, She gave her life for her. That's not exactly a fight people are going to replicate. Yeah, this is not the Mexican version of, of High Noon. What about the cartels? Um, the one that seems most associated with your story is Los Setas. Did they try and buy her off? They never tried to buy her off. I don't think that was going to work. I mean, there were threats, of course. She knew her life was in danger, and I think she just didn't care. Like I said, something snapped. You know, I think she was so heartbroken that you know, she, she would tell her children, her two living children, uh, they would often come to her and be like, Mom, when is this going to end? When are you going to stop doing this? Like, when is enough enough? And she says, don't ask. She would say, don't ask, don't ask me to stop. I couldn't stop. If you had been, if this had happened to you, I wouldn't stop. So don't ask me to stop because this happened to your sister. You know, she just didn't have a means to turn it off. Is this a kind of civil war in a sense in Mexico, the, the one you're describing? I don't think it's a civil war. I think it is. I think civil wars are large populations fighting each other. These are military forces that are going after discrete cartel forces. And it's, it's a criminal war. It's not a, it's not sort of an ideological war. It's not a land rights war. It's not a war for control of the government, which is often what the civil war is about. This is about, an institution that is 
dedicated to sort of servicing American drug demand. And that group has huge amounts of resources, huge amounts of weaponry, and an un an unending bank account, essentially, to, to fight this war. And then there's a government that is trying to kill its way out of that, which is, just isn't going to work. But a civil war, I think, would imply a much broader and wider scale of violence. And your average Mexican might be restricted in their living in the way that they can live by that violence, but they're not implicated in it. I'm pleased you brought up the United States. We've done a number of shows on the drug industry, one with uh, ben, uh, Benjamin Fong. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He has a, a book out. We talked to him earlier this year, Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to 21st Century Binge. How much of this dissent that you describe in the book that is the, the background to this, this terrible tragedy is essentially caused by American demand. Is that essentially the story? Is, is, is most of the illegal drugs in Mexico, are they coming into the United States? It's, I guess it's no coincidence that the, the place is, is quite close to, to Texas, as you said, it's about 60 or 70 miles south of Texas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, US drug demand is, is at the white hot center of the violence crisis in Mexico. Again, you have a country with a feeble rule of law and a gigantic border with the United States. And you have policies that enable it to shift these drugs into the United States. And Mexico is essentially, the cartels are essentially the DHL of narcotics. Wherever those drugs are coming from, whatever, whether they're created in a lab or you know, in coca farms in, in Colombia, those drugs are trafficked through Mexico and Mexi the Mexican cartels are in charge of the logistics that get them into the United States. And that is, I mean, it's not the only way they make their money. They have subsequently diversified from you know the days where that was all they did, but it is it is essentially a, the centerpiece of much of the significant cartel trafficking. And in this case, Tamaulipas, which is the state where San Fernando is, shares a I think a six hundred mile border with the United States, and San Fernando is at the center of a not of highways that all go to different places along the US border. So if you want to choke off any kind of transportation, it's an important place to go. And that in many ways is why so much tragedy was visited on it had sort of a unfortunate geographical location. Is the, the migration tragedy, is that a, a parallel tragedy or are these twisted together, the drugs and the migration problem? I think yes and no. I think a lot of the migration problem, problem, I wouldn't even call it a problem, a lot of the migration that is happening is economic. You know, individuals from Central America and other countries are looking for the kind of opportunities they believe they can find in the United States. And so they come through Mexico, much like the drugs, because that is the quickest route to get into the United States through the southern border, and kind of the only route if you're going over land. Um, Connected in that some of the trafficking violence that's happening in Mexico has caused people to flee and jump across the border for their own safety. And connected in that a lot of the smuggling of individuals is done by the cartels that smuggle illicit substances because they know the routes and they have the infrastructure and the organization to get people up there. So there, there's overlap and they are twisted together, but it is also they're also quite separate things at the same time, if that makes sense. To what extent are the cartels also providing work, jobs? I mean, how many people work for these cartels? And, and, and 
at, particularly at the low level, who, 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 who is working for them? How are they finding these people? How are they paid? Are they on official payrolls? <laughs> they're not on official payrolls, but they are on payrolls. I mean, there are people who administrate the, the payment for hundreds, thousands of these individuals. I don't know the overall number of how many people work, but obviously it's in the thousands. And it depends on what level you're at. I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted this book to do was to convey the utter misery of most of the people living in this space. There's a lot of glorification and, you know, gangsters walking around with gold-plated AK-47s, you know, drinking expensive whiskey and sleeping with, you know, gorgeous women. But it's not like that. I mean, most of the people that I write about in my book, I call them subsistence gangsters because they're not making money. They're sleeping in seedy hotels. They're driving, you know, beaten down, stolen vehicles. You know, they're, they're killing and taking lives for pennies on the dollar. And it's a, it's a rough existence, but it is, a, it is an economic force. I mean, you have billions of dollars coming in. That's a, if you were to get rid of that, a serious part of the Mexican economy would, would vanish um, or would be forced to creep into other things like robberies, kidnappings, you know, smuggling, other kinds of things that don't involve drugs. But at the end of the day, it's a huge, it's a huge economic engine. And presumably that is bound up also in the, the failure of the real economy or the, the above ground economy to provide work, particularly the agricultural sector. I think some of that is true. I mean, the Mexican economy is a robust economy, but yeah, it can't, it can't employ everyone at the level people would like to be employed. And it remains uh, kind of a, a low level of education. There remains a low level of education and employment at that level. So it's not like it is flourishing and developing and growing. I mean, the poverty rates in Mexico haven't changed much from the 90s. Um, and the kinds of jobs that are happening in manufacturing, they're not widespread. Everybody can't have them. So there's still large amounts of unemployment. And the informal economy is vast. And I don't mean drug dealers. I mean people who sell things on the street, people who don't pay taxes and aren't registered in the system. You know, it's, it's more than 50% of the economy is informal. And when you have that kind of lack of formal employment and the lack of opportunities, of course you have a, a capable or a willing workforce at the ready for, for what is a, a robust economic sector, which is drug trafficking. Your book has been very, very well received. A lot of, uh, a lot of stars you've got from Kirkus and from P Publishers Weekly. Um, the, the, the Kirkus Review describes it as a dispiriting yet necessary study, and, and this is what I was uh, struck by, of, of how a criminal enterprise can swallow a nation whole. Is that fair? Has this criminal enterprise swallowed the entire nation? I don't, I don't think it's swallowed the entire nation. I mean, it's certainly swallowed, I think it's swallowed the world's imagination of an entire nation. I think to say it swallowed the entire nation whole probably does not credit Mexicans enough. I mean, it is a remarkable place of culture, art, gastronomy, uh, architecture, history, literature. I mean, there's so much that Mexico has going for it, but it retains this sort of, this dark menacing cloud that hovers over it because it is such a predominant factor in the lives of so many, especially those who live outside of the, the rich cultural, literary, you know, gastronomical 
wealth of Mexico, those who are in, in some ways, you know, to, to carry the war metaphor, living on the front line. I think it swallows the nation whole in that were it not for that, this nation would have so many other things that everyone else was focused on. But when it does dominate the lives of so many and dominate the headlines in so many respects and the violence reaches such profound levels of depredation, it can feel like it's swallowing the nation whole. I don't know if it's fair to say it is swallowing the nation whole, but it certainly feels that way for the people who are living under the vice grip of organized crime. Yeah, well, people, of course, like Miriam Rodriguez. Uh, fi finally, as um, what can be done on this? I mean, it seems two two particular areas. One, what can the Americans do, given that they are causing many of the problems, and we all know of um, America's power over Mexico politically and economically. And what can be done politically within Mexico itself? Perhaps you might address the what, what American policy could, what should and shouldn't do first, and then we could talk about domestic politics in, in Mexico, because a lot of this seems to be political. I mean, I, I think that's a great question. One of the things, and I, I'm afraid I probably have a pretty dis unsatisfying answer. I, well, I, I mean, you're being honest, and I think that's why this, this book and, and, and speaking to you is so important, because you're not sweetening all this up even though the story itself could be one that I'm guessing Hollywood would take and sweeten horribly. <laughs> I mean, I, we're fortunate in that the director and writers who are involved in turning this into it, so the, the rights to the article, and I guess by extension the book, uh, have been purchased by Hollywood. But the director and the writers are very sensitive and extremely, extremely talented. Uh, and I think they are going to take it in a, in a beautiful, poetic, artistic direction that won't that won't sugarcoat it. Um, I think the reason my answer is unsatisfying is because I don't really like, and I don't see my job as coming up with policy prescriptions or correctives. I think there are a lot of people that do that. Some do it better than anybody. Some do it horribly. Uh, I think my job is more of a diagnosis. I think my job is to inf help inform policymakers about what it looks like for people living this reality, what the costs of their current policy are, um, so that there's an honest and unvarnished kind of presentation of it. You know, and the, you know, I, I appreciate you saying I don't sugarcoat it, but that is the version that people should understand about this. That is what they should know about how 2023 and you know, for the almost 20 years previous have played out for the vast majority of Mexicans living in these communities kind of dictated, where the terms are dictated by violent forces, whether their own government or cartels. I think on the US side, the, the questions that it raises are about our drug policies, about our encouragement of Mexican law enforcement to go after individuals and what they call the kingpin strategy, which for years has been to take out the top of cartels. So, we all have heard of Chapo. Why? Because it was highly publicized and the hunt for him was highly publicized. And there's any number of dozens and dozens of these guys the U.S. has taken out. And the idea was you take out one of these top guys and the institution underneath them crumbles or law enforcement can kind of deal with the small dissolving parts once you take the head off. But it didn't work that way. Instead, it became a multi-headed hydra. And instead of one criminal organization with command and control, you created five or ten. And that multiplication has only kind of led to the diffusion of misery of Mexicans living underneath it. So things like that, we have to raise questions about, is that a functional policy? 
is the nature of drug demand in the United States and our spending on punitive measures as opposed to remediative measures the right way to go about it. I can't, I don't want to weigh in on what they should or shouldn't do, but I think policymakers need to genuinely think about and respond to the realities on the ground, um, as opposed to just maintaining a kind of fire and brimstone approach. On the Mexican side, I mean, it's simple and impossible at the same time. It's the rule of law. It's creating environments wherein justice is actually achievable, where people believe in systems. The United States has rampant drug use, but you don't see nearly the level of violence in the United States, at least related to drug related to drugs as you do in Mexico, the kinds of harrowing acts. And in some ways it's because people fear being caught. There is, that's part of it, that they fear being caught, that there is sort of more of a system of controls. Whereas in Mexico, the impunity rate for a homicide is over 90%. I mean, that means fewer than, I think five in a hundred murders will be solved and the murderer will be convicted. It's impossible to to create a landscape where the rule of law is something taken seriously when you have that. Um, and as you mentioned before, economic opportunity is another aspect of this. People won't choose to enter a line of work where not just the work itself, but your life has an expiration date. And I think when they don't have that is something they need to think about. When there is honorable, dignified work that pays a real wage, they wouldn't choose that, or they wouldn't be as likely to choose that. Um, so I think there's there are things that both of these nations need to think about. And I think, sadly, in some cases, the Mexican authorities themselves don't really understand what's happening, never mind the U.S. authorities. As I'm your special investigative uh, correspondent for the New York Times, you're talking to me from Lisbon, you travel a lot, your next series is on Afghanistan. Actually, we're going to get you back on the show to talk about that. But clearly this story and this experience has had a significant impact on you. And you write about that uh, in part at the end of the book. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. How, how, how angry are you personally about this story? And, 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 and how, how have you left this story or has, how's the story left you? Hmm. I mean, I think any journalist working any patch needs to feel that sort of indignation, to feel enlivened by whatever it is they're covering. And it certainly didn't start with Miriam. I think it started with, God, I could, I could go on and on about the different things that made me indignant about the lives that people have to live there. Um, I, call, I call it a truant state because I think that sort of, one of the best ways to describe it. It's a state that just does not show up and does not have a record of attendance that would inspire anyone. An absentee and, state. An absentee state. And that, yeah, it, it angered me because you would see people who are doing everything right. They're working so hard. They're raising families that they love. They're, you know, they're taking it every single day. And on top of that, they have to worry about their children being the most precious thing in the world being taken from them and having nothing in terms of recourse. And it's, uh, it's harrowing. You know, you meet these people and they're, they're beyond broken. You know, you have people whose, again, the lights of their lives have been snuffed out and they just kind of carry on almost as hollow humans because the thing that they love most in the world has been taken from them. 
and there's so many of them, it's become normalized. People discount stories of the disappeared because it's just there's so many of them. There's more than 100,000, and that's what they've counted. Never mind the fact that in the course of doing research for this book, I like for every one or two who had claimed and registered their case, there were five or 10 who hadn't. Um, there's so many more who've never said a word about it because that is how seized they are by fear. I think it, did it change me? I think it, I think in some ways it allowed me to give agency to the voices of those people to find a beam through which to kind of teleport their experiences out to a broader audience. And I'm grateful for that. I mean, it, I think the experience in some ways was enriched for me because I had my first child as I was writing this book. Mm. And you just don't, you can't possibly understand what it is to lose. I thought I did, and I certainly didn't. What it would be to lose a child like this. I mean, it would be hard enough to imagine losing your child to the fates, cancer, some other kind of horrible accident or disease, but to actually have them violently taken from you. It's why I think in the book I write, I write about them in, you know, with faces in a spent state of anguish. Like they just can't, they're just, the harrowing thing about a disappearance is you're killed by the hope that your child might still be alive. And that perpetual torture is worse than any death you can visit on anybody because it just means that you live in this constant state where every moment that you aren't looking for your child is a betrayal of your child. And in order to move on, you have to kill your child in your own heart and just say, I know they're dead, even though you don't know they're dead. On the war continuum, it's among the more brutal tactics and it has been used so widely in Mexico that now even government forces use it. 